You've just found your survival guide for the new reality of business. From technical advances to motivation and leadership, workplace changes are happening all around us. How can CEOs, leaders, and managers accelerate talent development, reshape culture, and succeed with purpose? By seeing what's coming and making the personal and organizational choices to do better. Welcome to the Future Proof Workplace with Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett. I'm Linda Shark. Thank you so much for jo- joining another episode of Future Proof Workplace. And today is Morag Barrett's birthday. So she is celebrating and not going to be with us on the show. And then I'm traveling the rest of uh, this period of time and she's going to be the lead on the show. So we've uh, worked out a great little partnership. So happy birthday, Morag. I'm not going to say how old you are, but it's a great age. You've got a lot of a lot of life ahead. That'll give a clue. So today, I feel very excited and honored. In fact, I had the wonderful pleasure of me- meeting Eric Schoenberg. And um, Eric, actually, I met through my good friend, Marshall Goldsmith. And we were in Chicago and uh, was very excited to talk with him, among other people, of where the future of work was going. And then I invited Eric to be on another uh, show of mine, and I started to do some research on the future of work. And actually, he probably doesn't know this, but he sparked a lot of the thinking for our latest book, The Future Proof Workplace. Uh, which actually is doing quite well. It's a bestseller on a lot of different fronts. And it's uh, six strategies to accelerate talent development, reshape your culture, and succeed with purpose. And because of that conversation with Eric, uh, we did all this research and really figured out that um, now this is not all that new, but that all the approaches and concepts that we were using in the 20th century were designed around the past and an industrial kind of view of the world of work. And many of those either just simply don't work in this new environment where we have so many more entrepreneurs uh, and they're moving much more quickly. The whole work landscape is moving much more quickly and leadership is really uh, adjusting. And the behemoth big companies, while they may be around for the next 30 or 40 years, they're struggling to reshape themselves in a way to be agile and nimble. Couple that, this fast change, with the fact that we are now facing, again, uh, after 10 years, another massive labor shortage. So it was Eric who sparked our new book. And uh, he's actually quoted in the Future Proof Workplace. And I think you may might remember that, Eric, I'm not really sure. So I'd really uh, like to introduce Eric Schoenberg. He's the CEO of Masuedo, uh, Mansuedo Ventures, which actually publishes a very exciting magazine. If you don't get it, you should get it. It's Fast Company and Inc. Previous to that, he was editor-in-chief editor and uh, revenues grew by 23% and operating profits tripled, which is pretty astounding. Um, he's won numerous awards for uh, journalism awards, um, including the National Magazine Award for General Excellence. Before joining Inc., Eric was the founding editor of CBS Money Watch 
and editor-in-chief of BNET.com. He's, uh, before CBS, he was managing editor of Money Magazine, uh, which won the Luce Award for service journalism in each of four years it was eligible. As a writer, he's a winner of the Loeb Award and National American Award, uh, National Magazine Award, excuse me. And he's uh, been a talking head, I doubt that, on CNBC, MSNBC, CNN, public radio, and CBS, and therefore, I am totally honored to have him on our radio show, Future Proof Workplace. So thanks, Eric, for taking the time to join us. Oh, my pleasure, Linda. Nice to be here. Yes, I'm so I'm so glad we had a wonderful time with Marshall in New York recently, didn't we? Oh, that was terrific. Yeah. It, it always is. You know, whenever I, I've, I've heard his stuff so many times, but he always has an interesting twist. And, you know, he causes me to be mindful and reflect. Yes. Yeah, he is, uh, he's one of a kind, and his stuff never gets old. One thing about uh, Marshall's delivery style, Linda, and I'm sure you've noticed, is that he's one of those few people who can give a talk and laugh at his own jokes and right. works, and everyone laughs along with him. Right. It really does. That is totally, totally true. And he does always laugh at his own jokes and and they're really, and they're good, you know, and he's able to get people engaged and get people to laugh at themselves as well, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah. It's really disarming. Yeah, it really is disarming. So, uh, you know, the last time I talked to you, you were a president and and editor in chief of um, Inc. Magazine, which actually did an article you may or may not know, but on our our book, I guess, about a year ago, which Uh I was thrilled about. But um, so now tell me about Fast Company and, you know, and Inc. And who's really your audience? And and they're two fabulous magazines, but how are they different? Well, well, you could say that they, they start out with where they join. They're both about business people who are on the edges of the future. The, yeah. the ink focuses on entrepreneurs, so it's really written just for business owners and founders. Um, and it has been the sort of Bible for business owners and startups and entrepreneurs for almost 40 years now. Fast Company has a broader mandate, and it seeks out innovative business people wherever they're found. A lot of them are founders and entrepreneurs, and many are people who are making a difference inside large corporations. Yeah, well, that, that's interesting. Both brands seem to serve entrepreneurs, but, and you know, I think it's really geared towards leadership. And, um, you know, how is entrepreneurial leadership different from other kinds of leaderships? Because, because I think, and, and you'll, you know, you'll, you're the expert in this, you'll sort of test this theory, but I think we're going to have more and more entrepreneurial type leaders uh, going forward than we have now. So h- how are they different than other kinds of leaders? Well, uh, the, one of my favorite writers at Inc., Lee Buchanan, put it pretty well, and she said that uh, entrepreneurship is the only profession in which leadership is the entry-level position. Oh, interesting. So, you know, entrepreneurial leaders are people who learn leadership on the job. Yeah. Start a company because you have a great idea or you are the best coder on the block or the best salesperson or, or whatever, whatever moves you to take the leap into entrepreneurship. And then all of a sudden you find yourself down the road, if you're lucky, leading, a, you know, five, 25, 50, 150 people. Yeah. And all of a sudden you've become a leader, whether you bargained for it or not. You know, if you come up through 
a conventional corporate path. You kind of learn your job at the bottom. You watch the people who are your supervisors and you learn leadership, sort of the knees of people who are uh, good at motivating people inside a big corporation. So it's a really different kind of thing. It's, it's um, professionalism, sort of, I guess you would say, versus the ad hoc shoot from the hip type of leadership that arises from entrepreneurs. Right, right. Well, it seems to me that, you know, entrepreneurs, when they start, they have a passion for something. And they have, you know, they really have this uh, vision of what they can create, which is different from having a vision of how you lead others. And I think that gets in the way sometimes, Eric, of people being able to move from that passion of what they're doing uh, and creating to stepping back and saying, oh, but wait, now I'm leading a major organization and now I have to put on a different face to investors. I have to, you know, put on a different face to employees. I have to, you know, put processes in place. And how do they make that switch? And what makes somebody successful in making that switch? Well, self-knowledge, you're absolutely right. When you have um, a a passion, when you've created a company, when it's your baby, it's really hard for people to relinquish it. And uh, micromanaging is an occupational hazard for entrepreneurs who are trying to transition to being a larger company. So you have to be able to realize what you can't do and to understand that even though you did it all yourself when you're just starting out, that doesn't work. That impedes your growth. Um, a lot of entrepreneurs have a hard time with that. Yeah. Um, so the people who are really successful are the ones who um, can get their sense of proprietorship, their ego uh, out of the way and hire people who are, in, as the cliche has it, who are smarter than they are, yep. can take them to the next level. Another thing about that is that often you start a company with a circle of people that you trust. Um, So, uh, you know, they are, you know, your friends, they are your co-founders, they're your partners. And you need that circle of trust to get over the humps and the really difficult phase of just, you know, getting off the ground, getting your first customers, getting your, getting that first 500,000 or a million dollars. But then you need to expand that circle beyond the circle of trust to uh, like a circle of competence where you have people who really can manage growth, who can manage a larger team, who can um, will have a lot of experience and can take the company in ways that you you as an entrepreneur might not be able to. And often at that point, you have to um, part ways with the people who are in that circle of trust. And that is often really a traumatic change in the course of entrepreneurship. Yep, and it's painful because if you've created that circle of trust and you've had you have a lot of sweat equity together, you really um, have deep relationships with each other, and that's very hard to do. How how did how do they get through that from your point of view? You know, I it, it's that sense of mission and that passion about making the company great and realizing that vision that that persuaded them to launch the company in the first place. And they have to put that ahead of the friendship and the shared experience that they had um, with those people who were in that founding circle. Um, It's tough. And when you talk to a lot of entrepreneurs about it, it's 
clearly still painful for them. Yeah. And I sometimes think, you know, working, I've worked with a lot of uh, entrepreneurs and coached a lot of uh, executive groups and, and I've seen that dynamic. And one of the things that I've seen is that they take a long time to do it. And sometimes that time really hurts them. Right, right. Um, there's a phrase. In fact, it's the title of one of Marshall Goldsmith's books about what got you here won't get you there. Yep. You have to be able to continually grow and make the pivot. I think that one of the traits that entrepreneurs have that distinguishes successful ones from those who never really grow is this desire to continually learn, to feel, yeah. um, you know, I'm not this completed set piece of a personality. I'm constantly evolving and um, I'm going to be the person who was the startup leader of a, of a company with five employees and a and million dollars of revenue. And now I'm going to be the executive who's leading a company with 10 times the revenue and and many, many more employees. But you have to be willing to accept that you're this evolving thing and be willing to go with the flow. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, it does beg the question. <clears throat> it, it really, uh, I think this is a, a place, you know, to talk about Marshall a little bit, but where coaches have a great deal of uh, opportunity to help people through those hurdles. Mm. And it's very hard to do it by yourself, I think. Do you? Oh, I totally agree. I totally agree. You, you, you cannot have perfect perspective on yourself. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to get the, get the insight. So what other traits do you see that entrepreneurs have that others don't, either good or bad, that they have to get through? Well, uh, as far as the traits go, Linda, we actually did a survey about this with the help of a Gallup organization um, at Inc. And um, it, was a, it, it was a survey that kind of indirectly asked people a, a, a set of questions and that got at particular traits that you would think be, would be favorable to people in business. So willingness to take risk, focus on business, um, collaborativeness, uh, persuasiveness, and things like that. And, um, and then compared winners of the Inc. 5000 ranking. So yeah. the definition of the fastest growing private companies in America, very successful entrepreneurs with business people in general. And it found that there were some striking differences in particular traits in which the successful entrepreneurs on the Inc. 5000 outscored people in business in general, um, like by four or five times. Wow. And those traits included a willingness to take risk, which is not surprising. Right. Um, because really to succeed as an entrepreneur, you have to be willing to put, you know, your family, your finances, your, <laughs> your, your ability to get any sleep. You have to take a big gulp. <laughs> you have to take a big leap. You really do. And you have to be willing to do that, you know, again and again. Yep. So that was one trait, uh, willingness to take risk. Uh, and the score was off the chart for the successful entrepreneurs um, and it was useful for ordinary business people, but yep. for the Inc. 5000 winners, it was really, really strikingly different. Um, another one was determination. So an unwillingness to give up, resilience. Um, again, you can see that, that why that would be valuable to an entrepreneur because the road is, is always so rocky and yep. there, are, there are moments of chaos and defeat and every origin story has that, that kind of 
back from the brink of disaster right. at least once. Uh, it, from the jaws of defeat. <laughs> it, it is, it's, it's almost a cliche uh, yeah. in entrepreneurship, and yet um, we never get tired of hearing it, do we? No. And um, uh, another one was business focus. It may be another way to say determination. It's that you just have this desire to focus on your business, that you really recognize what's important, and you focus on that and, and not allow yourself to get distracted by other things. Yep. Um, and we were talking before about how you have to explode your circle of trust and expand it to a circle of competence. Well, if you have that focus on what matters in the business, you kind of recognize that at some point in, in most entrepreneurial companies' history, they reach a point where they, they know what they need to grow. They understand the metrics of their company's success, and they realize they're not achieving it with the people and having they, the people they have, and they have to make a change. Yeah, very, very hard to do. So those are the three biggies, in addition to the, the uh, ability to constantly learn. Right, those are the three. You can think of them as grit for determination, <laughs> guts for willingness to take risk, and focus. And focus, yes. So that, that that's really interesting. I would pose to you, though, Eric, that I think as we look at any great leader, you know, the ones that are really successful have those characteristics as well across the board. I think that um, if you're if you're going to be a great leader in an organization, if you're going to be a, a a manager of a business that is already established, the level of risk that you have to take is different from an I agree with that. Yep. Um, that the, the the level of risk in starting a company and making it grow is just is kind of is exponentially higher. Yeah. And other skills that um, that entrepreneurs don't necessarily score well on that serve you very well when you're leading a big organization. Things like relationship building. Yeah. Being five thousand entrepreneurs were not particularly outstanding in that category at all. Yep. And yet if you're, you know, operating inside a big corporation and you need to be able to negotiate you know, the inevitable politics of a of that and, and to motivate people to do things that need to be done, you need to be pretty skillful at that. And um, so that's a skill that matters a lot inside an organization and doesn't matter so much when you're starting out small. Yeah. So what would you say are some of the other things that they're not good at? Entrepreneurs? Yeah. Um, I'm trying to reflect back on that. Um, I would say entrepreneurs are not necessarily, you know, particularly empathetic necessarily. Yeah. Um, they are, I think they recognize themselves as being a breed apart. And um, I, I, entrepreneurs often, I, I hear in conversation they with each other, they talk about how their employees you know, can go home at six o'clock and that the job is not the most important thing. The company, you know, is not the most important thing in their life. For entrepreneurs who uh, eat, sleep and drink what's going on in their company and wake up in the middle of the night and and drift off in, converse, in, in, in the middle of conversations with their spouse thinking about their company, right. that, that they can't understand that. Yeah. They'll have an outside life. Yeah. Yeah. 
I, I, that, that's very interesting. That's very interesting. So, so uh, who's on the cover of this, we're dying to know, of this month's Inc.? And how do they employ these, these new leadership characteristics? Tell us about this. First of all, who is it? And well, um, tell us about it. The person on the cover of Inc., uh, which is, which is uh, you know, very apropos um, of this conversation, Linda, is uh, because it's our leadership issue. The person on the cover is, is Hamdi Ulakaya, who's the founder of Chobani, the yogurt company. Oh, I love him. He is a really inspiring guy, isn't he? Yeah. So, I mean, just to... Just, I might add... <laughs> Pardon me? An immigrant, I might add, who is a yes. naturalized U.S. citizen and who hires a lot of immigrants and he's in upstate New York, if I'm not correct. That's right. That's exactly right. So he uh, saw a classified ad for an abandoned factory in upstate New York. And, yep. Uh, I guess it was a dairy factory, perhaps. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and he, he moved in and started uh, what is now a $1.5 billion company, I think, in the largest Greek yogurt maker in the country, if not the world. Um, he's done a number of things that you just have to admire. Um, he hires only locally, uh, and that um, part of upstate New York was quite depressed when he moved in. Yes. By insisting on pulling people in from the community, he created a kind of loyalty among his workforce and gave it uh, a cohesion that made, made the company very productive uh, as well as successful. And as a, as a kind of ancillary benefit, not something he says he didn't set out to do, um, he ended up hiring a lot of refugees, not because it was something at first that he wanted to do, but only because uh, a lot of refugees had settled in that part of upstate. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't a political statement for him. It just, just, it just happened that way. Right. Well, I think it's now become deliberate. Um, yeah, I do too. As, you know, as he realized what a great uh, workforce refugees made, um, he began to 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 take uh, active steps to bring in people. Um, the um, uh, the Yazidi people from Iraq who were um, uh, being persecuted by um, ISIS, for example, created uh, hundreds of thousands of refugees. He made he reached out to them in particular and brought them. Uh, into Jabani. He said something very moving, I thought, about um, refugees, is that the moment you take a job in your community, you cease to be a refugee. It went, you wow. Put down roots, and you now have a home again. And wow. you can imagine the kind of loyalty that builds in a workplace. Absolutely. And especially to somebody who gave them a chance to put roots in place. I mean, that is, that is huge. What a profound statement. Simple, but really profound. Yes. So uh, also taken he, another thing about his leadership that's very um, inspiring to me and kind of captures the really best aspects of entrepreneurship is that uh, he extrapolates from things in his own life and spreads them out to the workforce. So he makes sure that um, that the workforce understands that he sees them not as cogs in, in his vision, not you know tools in his. Um, his path to great greatness, but partners. Um, after his first son was born, he said, I was amazed to realize how many companies don't provide parental leave. And he couldn't imagine that someone would have to go back to work after becoming a parent immediately. Yeah. So 
you know, unique uh, among factories like his. He provides six weeks of parental leave. I love that. I think he's going to be something, someone to watch uh, long term for sure. And, uh, you know, that leads me. I, I, I think we need to come up. We're coming up on a break, Eric, so we're going to have to take one. But uh, that leads me to talking about Charles Schultz, because I kind of, you know, I think he had bodies a lot of this kind of stuff. And, you know, Starbucks is now this mega company, but it started out kind of like Shibani's. So I'd like to talk to you about him a little bit. And also the same issue has the 50 best workplace rankings. And I'd love to get into that. So stay with us. Okay. We're talking to Eric. Schoenberg, who is the CEO of Mansueto Company, which uh, is the parent for Fast Company and Inc. Magazine. And we're going to be talking about the 50 best places to work. And, you know, some of the things that Charles Schultz has done that's that's kind of, I think, um, shaped a different kind of leader and a different kind of organization. So stay with us. Ever wondered if your career will last? Will your job be around in 10 years, 5 years, or even tomorrow? The Future Proof Workplace with Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett gives you practical tips and tools that are not only fact-based and proven to make you a better leader, but will also ensure that both your organization and career are future-proof. Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett are sought-out keynote speakers, leadership development and organization experts, and they can help you future-proof your career. To learn more about everything they have to offer you and your organization, visit futureproofworkplace.com. Welcome back. I'm talking to Eric Schoenberg, who is the CEO of Mensuedo, uh, which is the organization that oversees or is a parent company for Fast Company and Inc. magazine. And uh, we were just talking about entrepreneurs and the difference between entrepreneurial leadership and talking about the uh, the entrepreneur for Chibani, which is on the cover of this month's um, Inc. magazine, a fascinating story and a fascinating man. Um, Tell me, Eric, you know, Charles Schwartz, I mean, we all love, uh, or at least I love um, Starbucks. And it started as a small little entrepreneurial company, and now it's this behemoth all over the world. And and it seems like Charles Schwartz, sometimes he get, uh, gets criticized, uh, Schultz, I mean, gets criticized, but it seems like he really stands up for his values. And, you know, some people may say that this whole the shutting down a company for the diversity training, uh, maybe they say it was a lame action, but I know of no company that I've ever been associated with that would shut down its company for a half a day to make a point about a value that they have. I'd love your perspective on that. Uh, Well, I think it's admirable. And remember that this is the second time that Howard Schultz has shut down Starbucks um, across the board in dramatic fashion. The first time, for which he's also justifiably famous, was at a time when he felt like the company had lost its special sense of service. Yes, right. The company shut down with all the loss in revenue that that meant, Mm -hmm. uh, which uh, to give the baristas a chance to retrain in customer service and uh, become the special place that that Starbucks was when it began and what he envisioned it being. Uh, Now, um, you know, more recently, and and as has been widely reported, he shut it down to give people sensitivity training uh, as a result of a, a racial incident right. that embarrassed Starbucks in a Philadelphia um, 
Starbucks. Right. That that said a couple of things. First, that um, the culture at Starbucks is incredibly important to the chairman and CEO. Um, that um, he's it's to the extent they're willing to risk real money. Um, to live up to it. And secondly, that part of that culture is a culture of inclusion yep. and that everyone is welcome to Starbucks. Increasingly, you see in companies <coughs> the idea that what the company stands for is an important part of its branding. It's not right. just the product. It's not right. the service. It's not the atmosphere that Starbucks creates. It's you know how you what it says about you that you're a patron there and what it says about your beliefs. And um, I, I, I don't doubt for a minute that Schultz is sincere about wanting to make Starbucks an inclusive, inclusive place. But it, it's important to, to note that that's increasingly in the 21st century and for audiences like millennials, that's an important part of doing business now is making it clear what you stand for. Right. I, I totally agree. And I. I think at the end of the day, it, the the reason he did it was not for, for, you know, he wasn't thinking about the money. It was really the culture. Right. At the end of the day, though, he's probably going to enhance his brand dramatically as a result of that action. Well, how do you feel about Starbucks now? Better oh, or worse? Much better. I, you know, because I have paid attention to him and I'm a student of all that stuff, mm-hmm. I would never not buy Starbucks coffee. Yeah. Ever. You know, I'm I'm a loyalist, and it's the same with Giovanni. I that's the only yogurt I buy, and those are the reasons. And I switched from Uber to Lyft for equally the same reasons. Right. So yeah, you know, I think at the end of the day, you stand up for what you really believe in, and it does ultimately lead to increased revenue and and growth of your company. But you know, there's a lot of people that don't believe that, Eric. You know that. Uh, I do know that. Uh, the argument is that. It's hard enough to start a company. Why distract yourself with all this, you know, social responsibility and uh, and do goodery? Yep. Uh, you know, I would. Uh, you know, I I suppose there's there's a certain argument to that. But your example of Uber kind of makes the point: is that um, you can blow it yep. by not living up to values that you espouse, or not living up to values that your customers have, and. Um, uh, you can you can see now the brand advertising for Uber is not talking about the, the real benefits of the convenience and, and and ubiquity of of Uber, which are true benefits, but all kind of an apology for the way that Uber used to act. Right. Yeah. And it's and so you're you're caught on your back foot instead of leading with your with your real strength and why you yes. started the company in the first place. But so so. Let's let's talk about the uh, fifty best workplaces ranking. So, are there characteristics that unite all of these great workplaces? Well, the, who are the best ones, Eric? You know, who who are the top five? Well, uh, let me talk about the top one. Okay, let's do that. Perfect example. It's a it's a software company in the valley called Asana, and its uh, founder is Dustin Moskovitz, who came out of Facebook, um, and. What it embodies, I mean, you think of Silicon Valley companies and, you know, it's it's free food and, uh, you know. Post balls and all that stuff. Right. And, uh, all that stuff. Dogs in the office. Right. Uh, and, you know, it, it, it has all those perks. Mm-hmm. But what I think is really significant and why people love to work there is that responsibility is truly 
uh, distributed among the workers. So when they break up projects at Asana, somebody is put in charge of it. Could be a person at any level of the company. It's not something that's subject to rank. And that person is charged with getting all the information they need to make a call. But when they make a decision on a project or part of a project that they own, that decision is final. Everyone has to respect it. So you see how that uh, spreads uh, a sense of responsibility, um, accountability throughout the organization rather than creating a kind of us and them versus the leaders and the and the worker bees. Yeah. Um, that that level of uh, you know a sense of ownership is what unites all the um, all the companies that are on our best workplaces list. And something about this list that I think is important um, in the way we put it together and why it matters a lot to companies to apply for it is that it's not just an editor's favorites list. It is the result of a survey the companies who apply have to give to all their employees and the employees have to reply with a certain frequency. So you have yeah. to have 70 to 80 percent of your employees actually reply. Yeah. Um, and then it's scored by uh, by our partner, a company called Quantum Workplaces, and so what you get is uh, is basically companies that are that are chosen as best workplaces, not by us editors, but by the people who work there. Right, right. And I got to tell you something. Uh, this is interesting because you, and I'm sure you know, I've, I've worked for numerous Fortune 100 companies and uh, led the best place to work. Uh, survey internally, uh, you know, work organized it. And a couple of companies I worked for, which will go unnamed, uh, just didn't want to apply because it was so rigorous. And they were nervous about what the employees internally were going to say, because that requirement of yours to really get unfiltered feedback was um, scary. Yes, it is scary. Um, But you have to face it. We took it ourselves at Inc. And um I wish we'd scored better. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, like you say, learning is a positive thing. So, okay, give me give me two, three, and four. Who are two, three, and four? Uh, well, uh, uh, l- let me look them up. Um, so the uh, two th- is a company called War Green, um, and that is <laughs> notable for its pet perks. Uh Evotext, which makes education software and is in Burlington, Mass. Um, those are those are number two and number three. Wow. Okay. So you know, let's 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 go back to so the the the, the thing that really unites them, um, that sense of ownership. What else? Um, well, you have to achieve a certain level, kind of a, a set level, cross a hurdle of. Um, kind of the wealth of benefits and a quality of pay and things like that. So there's that kind of set piece. But also things that matter a lot in this, um, uh, in, in our survey is how employees answer questions like, am I proud to work here? Yeah. Um, do I, am I proud to say that this is my employer? Do I love the people I work with? Do I trust the leadership? And do I believe that they have um, a path forward right. that, can, uh, that can lead us to success. Yeah. 
So could you, you know, I, when in thinking about this, I used to be a Malcolm Baldridge uh, uh, examiner of companies. And when I think about the best place to work, sort of survey work that you do, mm-hmm. um, it makes me think that this could be a fabulous tool, like the Baldridge Award was a fabulous tool, in looking at your company and getting, like you did at Inc., getting some really honest, unfiltered feedback and using it as a continuous I sort of hate that word, but as a, you know, a continuous improvement sort of opportunity for you, because if, if people don't feel positive about the company, they're not going to do their best job. And of course, that's the thesis, you know, behind all of this. But so what do you think of that? Can, do people use it that way, Eric? Oh, gosh. Yeah, I think so. And they also use the uh, the best workplaces as a recruiting tool. So it's a, it's an incredibly powerful investment if you can, uh, you know, be, to apply for it and to do the work that's required to get your employees to um, to fill out the questionnaires and, and more importantly, to do the work ahead of time to get the employees to feel the way you want them to feel about, about the workplace. But right. once you have that quantified and you have the imprimatur of Inc. Magazine, um, it's a really, really powerful recruiting tool. It is a powerful recruiting tool. I mean, how many companies actually apply in a year? Oh, uh, hundreds. Hundreds, yeah. Well, I would yeah. thousands actually. Yeah, thousands. Yeah, I would. I would say so too because it's like this will date me, but it's kind of like the good housekeeping seal of approval if you get the you know one of the fifty best places to work. Did Did Google end up on the on the list? Do you and if you don't know, that's not a not a big well. Deal. Remember, we were we're uh, Inc. and uh, we look at only oh, a. Right and only entrepreneurial companies. That's, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. So I'd like to move to the unveiling of Fast Company's most creative people ranking. I'm, I'm sort of loving this. And who's on the cover this month? Um, and why, I guess, is she an exemplary exemplar of, um, of leadership and business? So let's talk about those two things. Okay, well, good. I'm, I'm happy to. The, the person on the cover of Fast Company this month is Reese Witherspoon. Oh, interesting. He's the founder of a company called Hello Sunshine, in addition to being the movie star that you know. Right. Well, Hello Sunshine is a storytelling company that's focus is on telling stories that advance the cause of women. Uh, and so you see, um, you know, and, they, and they're basically in every kind of media platform, podcasts, movies, television, video, um, video on demand um, and uh, books, and I mean the some of the projects that they're working on now um, are. Uh, let me just let me just look that up. Um, oh, some of the things that that have come out of Hello Sunshine or previous companies that Witherspoon has run are the movies Gone Girl. Oh wow! I like that movie. I like yes. that. Um, do you remember the movie Wild? Witherspoon starred in that and uh, yep. also produced it. And uh, Big Little Lies. Um, she says that um, kind of one measure of success that I found that really resonated with me or I thought was a really interesting measure. She says that she no longer now has to start um, the first 15 minutes of every pitch for Hell is Sunshine by talking about um, how women are portrayed uh, in media that everyone understands kind of the issue and understands the need for a company like Hello Sunshine. Yeah. Well, that, that's the good news. <laughs> took 
took a hell of a long time to get there now, didn't it, Eric? (laughs) (laughs) It did. It did. But, um, but you can't knock progress. And, uh, and people like, uh, Reese Witherspoon, who's now, uh, you know, an executive, uh, to be reckoned with and a force in Hollywood and, and, uh, you know, an entrepreneur of, of some repute. Um, Palo Sunshine has about 39 employees, I think, and uh, has a hand in all these different media platforms. One of the things that, too, that struck me, too, about her own description of, of her uh, leadership was, was a lot like what we were describing at the very top of the, of the show, Linda, about how you kind of don't necessarily set out to be a leader of people. You set out to accomplish a mission or you set out to, you know, to solve a problem or something. And that's what she did. And all of a sudden she kind of realized that if she was going to do that, she needed to have a bunch of people around her and that she was the leader of it since it was her idea and her passion. And, um, she talked about not being particularly confident in that role, but she's grown into it. And I think that's, that's really kind of a, the arc of a successful entrepreneurial experience. Yeah, really growing into and wanting to grow grow into that leadership role. Well, some of them don't want to actually, uh, which which is kind of interesting too. But so so who else came to the top besides uh, Reese Witherspoon? Well, the um, uh, the the number one through five winners and the most creative people were the um, the Parkland shooting. Oh wow! Because of yeah. uh, that that tragedy in Florida. Yeah. Yeah, um, and um, <coughs> they're not. I mean, you're talking about the kids, Eric, right? I'm talking about the kids, yeah. The, 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 yeah, I know exactly who you mean. Yeah, uh, David Hogg, Jacqueline Corin, yeah, Cameron Kasky, Emma Gonzalez, and Alex Wild, and they um, are, are now sort of media, um, very recognizable sort of media stars. Yeah, yeah. Um, but. But they got there. I mean, they earned their way there. They did through the the tragic circumstances that elevated them, elevated them. But more importantly, with the way they got there, the, by building the brand, by their insistence on not being ignored, yeah. uh, by savvy in social media, um, yeah. they've organized themselves in a quite sophisticated way, uh, and have you know really made significant differences. Um, it could well be. Thanks to them, young people are a real force in the midterm elections coming up. Totally. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And you know what I thought was sad? You know, there was a lot of discussion when they were first maligning those kids. Uh, you know, they're, they're young, I guess, going to be young adults, but, you know, oh, well, they're, you know, they don't know what they're doing. And, you know, really. Uh, they've got other backers behind them, I, I, you know, and, and in reality, they were standing up for something which I think was really great. And they've, they've reached out now to the uh, uh, Texas kids and are starting to build sort of the, a community around the country for this. These are kids to watch. Definitely they, kids to watch. Uh, and uh, it's remarkable that uh, so many talented kids are were in this one place. Uh, yeah. It's only sad that the catalyzing factor was this. Yeah, this event. Yeah. You know, I don't know about you, but, you know, every generation is smarter than the last. And uh, it's so interesting. I, I think these kids are 17 and 18, and I thought of myself as 17 and 18, and I was nowhere near as 
smart or sophisticated as, as, as these kids are. I, I think it's really great. And um, I, I agree with you that this is a catalyst for uh, these are kids to watch. And I hope that they take uh, political steps going forward. You know? Uh, yeah, well, I think they by now have the name recognition um, and and they're acquiring the experience and the savvy to really be effective political operatives. I, I wonder if they'll choose that for a career. Who yeah. knows? They are still very young and, and a lot of things can happen. But. A lot of things can happen. You know, I want to jump forward. There's two things that are near and dear to my heart and we don't have very much time left to the mm-hmm. show. But, you know, we're back in a labor shortage, uh, 3.9% unemployment rate. I mean, it's was not there. Uh, the last time we were there was about 10, 12 years ago. Um, so how serious is this labor shortage problem? And what are some creative recruiting techniques you've seen? Well, it's, it is serious, and it's particularly serious for small entrepreneurial companies that don't yeah. have money to put into benefits, that, that can't spend a lot on recruiting and don't have necessarily um, you know, stock options and um, you know, publicly traded stock to give away in their 401k or in their benefits. So that, that's tough. Um, and you have to be pretty creative about how you, how you do things. And I think about some of the entrepreneurs that uh, – that I've seen in, um, you know, recently in the pages of Inc. and Fast Company, um, Ali Webb, who's the founder of Drybar, recruits wherever she encounters people in service. Yeah. You, yeah. She figures that you can be trained to do a good blowout um, at Drybar, but what you can't train is, you know, a personality, a, a willingness to help, um, a pleasant smile, even. And yeah. so she's recruited people. It's checkout counter in supermarkets or um, waitresses, uh, waiters who've, who've uh, served her in restaurants. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, always keep an eye out for talent. Yeah. Uh, other companies uh, that I think are worth recognizing have looked outside the usual kind of college graduate and way outside the elite college graduate, Harvard, Stanford. Yep. Mm-hmm to find people in um, uh, who have really been overlooked. So veterans would be a source of uh, entrepreneurs. A high, they have a very high unemployment rate, and yet they have incredible skills that they've developed in terms right. of uh, teamwork or communication skills um, and directness. Uh, or um, uh, even um, a, a, a population that is sadly quite large and, and larger probably than it should be or larger than we should want it to be, it would be ex-offenders. Yes. There are a number of companies like uh, Clicker is one that uh, we mentioned that um, seeks them out and yeah. they tend to be very loyal. Um, they have a very hard time getting jobs uh, in the general population. And you know, what you're doing for these people is allowing them to create uh, a resume yeah. So that the first thing that comes up when you know you Google someone's name is not their arrest, but but that they work something. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Sort of like the Chibani guy who you know hired uh, refugees and then gave them a sense of roots, and because of that, people are incredibly loyal to him and his organization. It's the same thing with ex-offenders. Yes. Right. Uh, and I mean, when you think about what entrepreneurship does, um, you know, in addition to creating wealth and 
making the world a better place and solving problems for consumers. It it creates jobs and it when it works, it um, supports families and creates livelihoods. Um, yep. I was talking to Che Huang, the founder of Boxed, at um, at an Inc. event last week, and he talked about one of his employees and kind of um, teared up as he as he did it. The employee was um, uh, was a a kind of ferocious looking guy in a Philadelphia 76ers jersey. Very uh, right there. <laughs> Jay had invited him to, uh, um, you know, a, a get to know each other meeting with a lot of other people who worked at the boxed warehouse. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the boxed employees are, are not highly educated uh, and, um, are not people who went to Wharton and so forth. They're not the elite and don't have a gazelle-like path through their careers. This guy got up and, and said, you don't know me. And Shay, as he told the story, said, uh-oh, this could not go well. And uh, he said, but I spent 20 years as a, the head of paralegals at a prominent Philadelphia law firm. And... Um, Lost my job in 2008 and couldn't find another job. And you gave me one at Boxed. Wow. And because of that, I'll always have your back. Wow, that's what a great way to end this show, uh, Eric. I, what, what a great statement. Give people a chance. Give them an opportunity to show what they can do. And they will always have you back. And unfortunately... We've lost our way around that in the world of work. And I'm, I'm hoping that all of this is going to come back big time. And thank you so much for the wonderful stories and exemplars that you highlight in both your phenomenal magazines. And um, thrilled to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for your time, Eric. It was inspiring. This has been the Future Proof Workplace with Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett. To learn about the hosts or to get more resources on future-proofing your organization, visit futureproofworkplace.com. Thanks for listening.